again, everyone. Thanks for tuning in and welcome back as we continue in our third season of this podcast. My name is Jeffrey Kwame, your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. Our podcast today is made possible through the financial support of Coel Counseling and Consulting List for Connecticut on the Boston Post Road. The practice owner, Joanna Crowell, is a licensed professional counselor and EMDR certified trauma therapist. She is also internationally certified as both an advanced alcohol and drug counselor and clinical supervisor. Joanna is an integrative psychotherapist who incorporates a holistic approach to health, wellness, and recovery. She works to meet clients where they're at and supports client-led goals and habit changes that support an ongoing process of transformation. She's been a passionate member of the mental health and addiction recovery field for over 10 years, approaching recovery as a lifestyle rather than a short-term solution. For more information, go to crowellcounseling.org, or you can reach the practice at 860-577-2252. And on behalf of the board of directors and staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. Credibility in the substance use disorder industry continues to remain suspect at best. At worst, the crisis of credibility still exists. Distrust exists between different modalities of treatment, between supporters of different paths to recovery, and there are significant misunderstandings among others on what prevention actually entails. There's much, much more than dare, you know. Those who work in the field have their own who have their own recovery histories may feel that those without lack the ability to guide someone seeking release from the grip of substances, while those who do not identify as being in recovery feel that their counterparts in, that are in recovery actually lack desire to meet clients where they're at instead of guiding them through their own personal recovery pathway. Following the lead of others who recognize that, I have written and trained nationally on the crisis of credibility, and we seem to all come to the same conclusion. The problems and credibility issues that we face are generally our own doing and therefore can be undone by us as well. Another issue that we must face and eliminate is the siloing of specific roles of prevention, treatment, and recovery supports into our own little fiefdoms. Rather than seeing the interconnectedness of what we all do, we tend to see our own specific roles as most important and most effective, often ignoring, ignoring the research and practice that drives the other roles. We don't understand what each other do. We often don't communicate between these roles. This must change for us to move forward, and that's our focus for today. Our guest is an expert in building those bridges. Jane G. Clark currently resides in Charlotte, North Carolina, and brings a, a diverse background educationally, professionally, and experientially to help her leadership roles in the behavioral and public health fields. She currently serves as a regional program director for a nationwide private consulting firm dedicated to assisting government, tribal, and other nonprofit agencies with grant writing, program planning and implementation, professional training, and other business development initiatives. Her previous leadership roles span a variety of levels, including director of a national tribal serving organization, director of a prevention agency serving nine states, interim director for a state prevention division, director of a 20-county region for a managed care organization, and as CEO of a local nonprofit. She received her master's degree in public administration and her bachelor's degree in letters from the University of Oklahoma. She has lived in or traveled to 12 countries in 85 cities spanning four continents. Her nomadic upbringing as an embassy brat provided insight and skills into cultural competency, relationship building, and mediation that created the foundation for her career in prevention. She is certified as a prevention specialist through state and international licensing boards and was awarded the 2014 Art of Prevention Award by the Addiction Professionals of North Carolina. 
as well as the 2009 Prevention Specialist of the Year Award through the Oklahoma Drug and Professional Counselors Association, known as ODAPCA. We are honored to welcome her. She shares her knowledge, experience, and insight with us. Welcome, Jane. Thanks so much, Jeffrey. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, we're really glad to have you, and we get to talk about something that's often kind of pushed away and I think is really important. Um, you know, and it's it's abundantly clear to me based on some of the training events that you've done in the past and some that are upcoming uh, on building bridges between sectors of our industry that you also see this as an issue that's really important to address. Um, when did you first kind of gain the understanding of the, the disconnectedness of, of each of these roles? Almost immediately when I was a newbie in the field, I've been in prevention almost 20 years now, but within the first six to 12 months, it, you just couldn't miss the silos. If you're a preventionist, you were in this part of the agency doing this kind of work. If you're a treatment, you were in this other part of the agency doing this work. There were never any meetings in between. And recovery, as it's recognized now, wasn't really even part of the conversation at that point. But then you also saw it in places like the conferences, lots of treatment conferences. Occasionally, they might stick a prevention class in there. There wasn't really prevention. Um, plethora of treatment conferences, not very much for prevention. Um, same with trainings. You know, we all have to have our certification hours, and it was always really hard to find prevention-focused ones. So at that time, the silos were very, very, very clearly defined. It's definitely gotten better <laughs> over almost two decades, as I would hope it would, but um, you just couldn't miss it. You know, even being brand new to the field, you couldn't miss it. Yeah, and I think that when I came into the field many years ago in the treatment side, if you worked with folks who had alcohol use disorders, you were separate from those who worked with, with other drugs. And it took a while for the that part to meet, but we're still waiting for the as a whole to kind of come together. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> you know, it, it would seem obviously that it's important to have a shared understanding of all the roles. Understanding each role helps us all do our, our job better. But um, would that shared understanding help us improve and develop the field as a whole? Oh, definitely. And now more than ever, actually, in my opinion, we we are at the we're at the forefront of this opportunity for anyone in behavioral health, whether whether it's health promotion, prevention, treatment, or recovery, to finally have a national spotlight on what we do. And because of that, we need to have shared language, shared part, well, just partnerships, period, shared opportunities to work together, to send to resources to each other. Um, the current administration is funding mental health and substance use in ways that we just have not seen before. So if we can't collectively find one voice, we'll miss this really valuable opportunity that I think will, will be around for the next decade. Tons of funding already coming out about this, but we have to be unified to do that. So that's a number one reason. Um, but also we already have a workforce development shortage. We had that before the pandemic. It's gotten worse for obvious reasons during COVID-19. Um, and if we aren't more integrated across our fields, that workforce shortage is going to lack any kind of bridge. We're just going to lose people and lose services. But if we work on some kind of integration between, between whatever the field is that you're working in, that at least gives us a fighting chance to not lose this really critical workforce, especially yeah, post-pandemic. We've, we've always had workforce issues. 
because of competency issues, whether we were full or not. Um, but it, it, with the great resignation, uh, as they talk about now, is kind of a sociological phenomenon. and it, It's significantly worse and providers everywhere are hiring. Yeah. yeah. Um, how does having a shared understanding, um, how does it actually uh, help us develop? Is there an overlap between, I guess I would say, between prevention, treatment, and recovery? And what is that overlap? I've seen the overlap for a long time. I've noticed it's harder to help folks understand it. So the best model I've come up with, you know, on current research and what's out there is the Institute of, of Medicine, which is now, I think, called the National Academy of Medicine. Um, they had something called the Continuum of Care. And on the continuum, I mean, it looked like a straight line. Health promotion starts here. Recovery is the end of the line. Prevention and treatment are in the middle. But the fact is, in our daily practice, our daily work, it's not a continuum at all. It's really a cycle. Um, and because it's a cycle and not just the straightforward continuum, it's not like you end, you do health promotion and that's the end of that. And then you do prevention. That's the end of that. Then treatment, then recovery. We aren't in these little blocks of, of services it's because it's a cycle. One leads into the other. So the more we understand as professionals on each part of that continuum, the better able we are, A, to support the people we serve, B, the communities we serve, and we're also able to kind of plug in resources that, that broaden the credibility, to use your word, that broaden the credibility of what we do in behavioral health overall. How do we facilitate more growth and understanding? Well, currently, you know, there's nothing like money as an incentive, <laughs> whether you're in nonprofit mm -hmm. or otherwise. There, there, in the past 12 months, and especially the past three months, I have seen more funding come down the federal lanes towards different behavioral health aspects than I've ever seen before. I've done grant writing pretty significantly for the past 10 years. So one, now we have this incentive of money to start partnering because a lot of these grants are wanting to see um, prevention and recovery programs working together, medication-assisted treatment plus recovery plus prevention. There are a lot of these integrated opportunities that are being funded for that integration. So that's definitely a good incentive. But not, another is just that we all we're all doing we're all addressing social determinants of health, which is a buzzword right now. Mm -hmm. um, it's not new. The buzzword is kind of trendy, but the effort isn't. And I think folks at each level on that cycle of care address those, even if they don't know they're doing it. Yeah, the fact that treatment and recovery people know what that phrase is, whether they have a solid understanding or not of it, uh, you know, remains to be seen. But the fact that we even know what it is shows you that it's kind of the hot thing uh, right now. But you're right, money is one of those things that joins it. And it used to be that you'd have one agency fighting for the dollars and they wouldn't want to share with anyone. But mm -hmm. now we're saying, you know, uh, when we look at things in an economy of scale manner where this one group of uh, funds can be shared by many people to get a single job done, it forces that collaboration. Yeah, it really and, does. And I think it's important. Uh, oftentimes, practitioners of any of the three, we become so immersed in our own narrative and our own roles. Um, you know, and there are many, many reasons for that, often beyond the control of an individual, um, you know, that we fail to recognize the value of the other roles as it relates to what we specifically do. And are, are there ways that we can see that shared impact, that we can actually see it in front of our face? 
Yes. So when I do these kind of the presentations about bridging prevention and recovery or bridging treatment and prevention, I use a parable, a parable called the upstream parable. And I think it actually is probably the best answer to your question, because in the upstream scenario, you just imagine that, that you are standing at the side of a raging river and not far off to your right is a waterfall. And while you're standing there, you see an adolescent come, you know, pulling down through the current and they go off the edge of the waterfall. And the longer you stand there, the more of these people you see flowing down the river and over the edge of the waterfall. Eventually other people come to join you. You're all standing there thinking what's going on. And from the treatment side of it, that's where that part of the story is the jumping in and creating a human chain across the river to try to catch people before they go over the edge of the waterfall. So there's some there's some efforts for that. They're effective. It's necessary. There's a need, an immediate need that's being addressed. But that chain of people can't catch everyone that's going upstream, you know, downstream and over mm-hmm. the waterfall. At some point, more and more people are falling into the river. More and more people are standing there getting, you know, tired because it's just them catching folks from going over the edge, you know, or providing the treatment services and and one way to look at it. And at some point, somebody says, this isn't enough. We're treating, you know, we're treating, or in this case, we're, we're stopping people from going over the edge. We're doing our best right here, right now to solve this immediate issue. But we need to send somebody upstream to find out why these people are falling in the river. Why are they in the river to begin with? And at that point, that's where you start seeing, I think, the struggle between what have been our traditional silos is when you're part of a chain of people across the river, trying to keep people from dying over a waterfall, the idea of one of you letting go to go somewhere else to find the source of the problem just doesn't seem important. It's not, you know, it doesn't seem as critical because right here, right now, we're saving lives. The one person who goes upstream, there's a lot of convincing, please don't leave us. We need you here. The issue is now. But if we don't ever stop to wonder what caused the issue to begin with, then we'll never solve it. So when you send a preventionist upstream, they might find that the source, ideally they find the source of the problem. Oh, well, there's a hole in the bridge and people don't know it. And so they keep falling into the river. And then it's a preventionist job to start trying to repair that hole. You know, as everything goes in real life, it takes time. So people still fall in the river. But ideally, when you've got prevention and treatment working together, the hole's getting smaller. You know, there's interventions, less people are falling in. The people in the human chain saving lives are not having to be so overtaxed because they're the only ones addressing a whole issue. Now they're part of a collective problem-solving effort. And then from the recovery side of it, the, the, the stoppage and the intervention at the prevention level and then the treatment there at the edge of the waterfall, the recovery comes from those people who are saved from going over the waterfall. They might be inspired to become part of the human chain. And to help save others, you know, from the immediate crisis, they might be inspired to go upstream and help solve the problem with the hole in the bridge. Um, the The recovery side of it is, you know, if I I come from a, a family that has a lot of um, addiction issues, if if any one of the then adults, you know, now I'm an adult, even though I don't believe <laughs> it, but if any one of the then adults in my life had gone into recovery, that would have prevent been prevention. For, for us children in the family, because we could have seen an alternative way to do things, um, or at least we would have known that there were other resources out there when, when we did stumble into our own issues. So 
I love the upstream story because it just gives you the visual of where each of us is in this process and that we really are working together just in very different, very different areas for different needs. And and that story, that parable you told, that got me thinking of a lot of different situations where I can see it in play. One of the things is if we have to wait for the government to pass an infrastructure bill to fix that hole, we better have a strong chain down the other end. Exactly. With that aside, you look at that and understand that issues are different. You know, when 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 treatment is is often only for the most people who have the most needs right now. We see a lot of people mm-hmm. that find recovery without ever going to treatment or or may, you know, recover prevention can stop somebody from getting into and I think that that we have to look and understand that better. Um it's it's interesting to me that you say that because on this podcast several months ago we had a a sociologist from Holy Cross in Worcester Mass who talked about the sociological aspects of creating the opioid crisis, the overdose Uh crisis. And then I talked to a psychologist out of Chicago who wrote an article for Time Magazine that said, the only way we're going to get out of this crisis is through prevention. Right. Because we're looking at it in a much more long-term basis. So I think your parable hit both of those folks were saying right on the head and that we can work together. Instead of my role is the most important, everybody's important. It really is. And the thing about prevention that that I think a lot of people, not just in our field, but just sort of across the country, first of all, our country has been, you know, for a long time, fortunate enough to to have the kind of infrastructure and finances to focus on research and cure. Smaller countries have to focus on prevention because they don't have the infrastructure. Well, prevention, prevention is critical because it shapes norms. So, you know, you talk about the opioid crisis, that's a great example of it. I think the United States is one of only two countries in the whole globe that allows pharmacies to advertise medications. Now, if you think about that in the context of cultural norms, you know, for those that still watch regular TV and not just, you know, Netflixing all the time, commercials are still out there. And if you pay attention just one evening, you'll count up to 10 medication advertisements in like a two hour in the family time slot zone on TV, mm-hmm. what that's doing is it's teaching the younger generation and really any of us that going to medicine to fix a problem is, is a norm. And because that's a norm, it became very easy to start over prescribing. And then it became very easy to just start using it because I'm not really using a substance if I was prescribed it. And now we have this epidemic, but if we don't, you know, the treating the individual, treating the immediate needs are critical. But if we don't ever change the culture around us, then we get to have these individual successes when we're lucky, but we never really get to to change the health and welfare of our country. And, you know, the government has some role in that, but I also see that that worked when we look at smoking, smoking in bars and restaurants. They said that'll shut down restaurants and bars if that happens, but they did it anyways, and it didn't. And now you don't see as there are less people smoking when we look at stats, but you don't, it, it did not create the problem. It changed the culture. Um, and it, now you can go into a restaurant or on an airplane yep. um, and not have to be exposed to something, a chemical that you don't want to. So it That's, worked. We do change the culture. It really did. But it took decades. Yeah. You know, the, that, the, 
anti-commercial tobacco campaigns started in the early 80s. It took at least 20 years before it was really kind of accepted and embedded in the culture enough to even roll out the policy about no smoking in certain places. Now here we are another 20 years later, and it's starting to change again. Here it took us three decades to really get tobacco usage numbers down and to really promote um, the dangers of tobacco use, of commercial tobacco use. And I'm seeing already, so I'm curious what's happening behind the scenes. I'm seeing already, you're starting to see smoking in TV shows. You're starting to see smoking in, in movies again. It's starting to sneak into these ways that that are ways that impact culture. Because one of the changes that happened with tobacco, you know, 20, 30 years ago was they banned it. You couldn't, you know, you weren't supposed to show smoking in movies and TV anymore. And so that helped change the norm. So what's happening now that we're starting to see that coming back? And why is it okay? And look at how easy it is for, you know, three decades of work to start being chipped away at for backsliding again. I mean, norm, norms, changing norms yeah. is really impactful. and. Most of us in this field do not work for big commercial agencies that have money to do it. We're, you know, working on government and nonprofit money. <laughs> and we cannot rely on the government to make the changes because we right. see what happens. Just say no, et cetera. And one of right. the things in terms of prevention that was a struggle previously was, and this was brought to my attention by Dr. Carl Hart, who, uh, if you know him, he wrote a book, Drug Use for Grownups, and he's written a couple other things. He's kind of on the fringe, but he understands what's going on. And he was saying one of the things why prevention had traditionally had problems was you're not telling the folks that you're trying to reach the truth. If you use drugs, you're going to go to jail or die. And children, the main target there, we're seeing people using drugs regularly that were still alive, obviously, and weren't going to jail and saying, the message I'm getting is not true. And so it was almost like the dumbing down of America to try to scare. Yeah. But when we are younger, we see things with open eyes, right? We sure. don't have experiences that guide our vision. We see bigger picture. And I think that's what's happening there, but that can happen in the positive. When we see someone in our family find recovery or one of our friends or somebody, that be they become a role model and say, oh, look at that person. They don't, it becomes out of state of mind. You don't think that, oh, that person is having fun without alcohol or without drugs. You're saying that person is having fun. They're enjoying whatever it is that they do. And, you know, that's why prevention, that's why prevention has had to evolve in its practices, too, as a field. You know, initially we focused on education and scare tactics. Once we started focusing on environmental strategies, which people always think, oh, we're recycling and so on. When we say environmental strategies as preventionists, we're talking about changing the community norms. So once we started focusing on that, that also brought to rise the need for evaluation and measurement so that we could prove that what we're doing works. So it wasn't enough to just tell kids, watch out, substance use is bad for you. <laughs> you know? We had to be able to start proving to communities that this is a true statement. These are the factors or the social determinants of health to use the buzzword. These are the factors that are contributing to that. But look at what this, look at what the statistics say, look at what our local data says. And I think data and evaluation is another critical juncture for prevention, treatment, and recovery. We all need to prove that what we're doing is effective. And because I think initially we started as touchy-feely, you know, type of fields, mm -hmm. that numbers and evaluation didn't seem appealing when they first started becoming part of our requirements. But that's a really major unifying factor across the fields, you know, for grant funding, but also, I mean, 
instead of infighting, isn't it great to be able to congratulate each other that every step of the way we're really having an impact? It's easy to lose sight of that. Yeah, and I think that's really important and easy. If you step back and look, you see that, and it's an easy thing to do to recognize that, hey, we're all trying, we're fighting the same fight. It's, you know, the same war. It's just different battles, and everybody has a different role. And I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things in the treatment world, and just quickly, you were talking about, you know, measurement and, and data. We're not great in this field in all sections of it in data. The treatment data used to be, you know, how many visits and a call at 30 days post discharge to check to see if somebody was, you know, uh, sober, so to speak, you know, at the time. Are you using? No, great. That's and that's not true data. It's not scientific data. It's not bad to have. And use internally, but it doesn't tell a story. And you know, if you're writing grants and you've been in in, in senators and representatives' offices, and many of them have the sign that say, "In God we trust." Everybody else, bring data. <laughs> it's true. Nowadays, it's true, which is a good thing. It's right. a good thing. Yeah, if the, a formal senior state agency director here in Connecticut once said at a meeting, um, "If you don't show me outcome, don't ask me for income." And I thought that was one of the most fantastic things that I had ever heard. But in my naive way, I thought we were measuring things and we weren't really. Well, we were measuring different kinds of things. You know, we were looking at we were measuring process maybe as opposed to outcomes and impact. Now we're looking at more of the long term stuff to show, you know, what is that long range thing? Does it just work for a year? Does it work for 10? And the federal government does have um, like the healthy people. Oh, I think it's Healthy People 2030 now. Um, Surveys and reports like that that are showing this longitudinal data, which is helpful. Or the CDC is behind a lot of the current funding. And there was a, I'm going to get the statistic wrong. I'm sure of it. But for a grant I was writing recently, the CDC had cited that just between August of 21 and no, August of 2020 and January of 2021, there had been a 10% increase in um, anxiety-related issues, suicide issues, and depression issues. So I'm like, that is a span of six months. Now imagine if we have that, you know, if we continue to monitor that on the longer term, then the story tells itself. We don't have to prove why what we do is valuable and necessary. The numbers and the, the evaluation proves it for us. They already do prove it for us, actually. And, and as important as moment in time data is for us, we have to look longitudinally at trends and things that have changed so we can stay up to date on what's happening and adjust what we do based on on what we're seeing so and also predicting future trends so i think that whole measurement piece for all aspects that all three sides of that triangle prevention yeah. treatment recovery you know are important now just kind of stepping back to something that's not as tangible but is very important in the treatment and recovery world it's a therapeutic relationship. We focus on relationships with individuals and families. Are relationships as important in the prevention community uh, to the communities that you serve? They they are the key to whether it's going to work or not. You know, in the treatment side of things, you get the one-on-one or maybe the, the family that you're working with. For prevention, we get individual in the sense of sometimes we get to go in and teach evidence-based curriculum at a school. We get family in that we, you know, we host alternative activities or parenting classes, evidence-based parenting classes that help increase protective factors um, that will decrease substance use or the, the propensity towards it. But the 
the biggest part of what we do is community focused and recovery. A lot of my friends in the recovery field use this phrase, which I love. It's the no decision about us without us. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what, that's why you need relationships and community work and the kind of work that prevention does. Because first of all, you don't want to go in as a preventionist and the prevention agency and say, this is what I think the this is what I think the issue is. And this is what we're going to do about it. You need the data, first of all, to show this is actually an issue. But then you need to understand the community, just like you would need to understand an individual in relationship to know what their readiness level is to deal with this. And then once that trust is established, that's when the real work starts happening, because the relationship at a community level involves relationships at individual and family and organizational levels. And it involves relationships between treatment and recovery and prevention. It's it's the key. It's really the key to everything got, we do. I got a big smile because when I was in social work school, um, I was a community organizing minor. And I see a lot of people in a prevention field who have community organizing education and backgrounds. And one of the last projects that I had to do in one of my classes was a community study of either where I lived or where I worked. And I remember, I did it where I lived. And I remember talking to local politicians, to community leaders, to the morning DJ on the local AM station who had, you know, their pulse, their finger on the pulse, what was going on. Anybody and anybody in that town who had a story to tell about what was going on was incredible data for my report. So as yeah. you're telling that, I'm reliving what happened a long time ago. But I've been doing prevention. About it. You were doing. And I learned more about my town than I could ever imagine. <laughs> it's true. I, you know, you were doing prevention before you knew it. I think yeah. that happens to a lot of people in our cycle of care. Um, it's just the more understanding we have about what each of our fields do, the more recognition there is that we're really kind of doing the same thing. We're just doing it from different angles sometimes. So the story of the elephant, I don't know if you know about the story. It's you have five blinded, blindfolded people at different parts of an elephant, and they're all asked to describe what an elephant looks like. Well, one has a tail. So that description is totally different than the one who has the trunk and one has legs. That's what we are. We're all trying to describe the same elephant, but we only know the piece we know. So we need to be able to see the whole thing. (laughs) No, I've never heard that. That's a real valuable way to look at it and simple enough for us to get that. The problem is huge. And we all we can't take it on individually, but we can all inform others and put our roles together to make a much stronger system. Yeah. Yeah. you know, I'm going to go back to the to the key phrase that's kind of the hot thing right now. Um, and one of the things that, that you address and, and talk about are the social determinants of health in your trainings. Um, the prevention side of, of our industry really does a tremendous job understanding and addressing the social determinants of health. How does an understanding of those factors help the treatment and recovery communities? It's the, the social determinants are things that treatment and recovery communities are probably already addressing, even if there's different language for it. If you think about um, the eight dimensions of wellness, for example, that's a model that spans all of our fields and is useful to all of our fields, where those dimensions of wellness include things like um, social impacts, physical impacts, economic, spiritual, educational. All of those things are the social determinants. They are the parts of the the culture, the community, and the society around you that impact an individual's wellness. So, you know, if you're um, one-on-one with a with a client in a therapy session, 
you're not just talking to them in that moment at, you know, who they are in that moment. You're learning about what was their family history? You know, what was the dimension of wellness there? What were the social determinants that helped shape them into, into who they are today or, or helped to shape um, some of the challenges that they want to, to learn about and overcome? And same with recovery. I think recovery probably does this a lot more um, than they realize. But from the recovery perspective, the eight dimensions of wellness are critical. You know, being in recovery and maintaining maintaining recovery isn't just, oh, well, you know, I'm just not going to use today. It's also what kind of environment am I in? You know, how's my spiritual self feeling today? Where am I economically? Do I need, you know, need a job or is there stress related to that? It's, it's all about dimensions of wellness. That's really, although social determinants is the key phrase and the dimensions of wellness is the model, no matter where you are on that cycle of care, you're addressing that in the people you work with because we're not created in vacuums. All of these elements impact who we are and how we've developed. Yeah, that makes sense. When I worked many years ago uh, at the turn of the century, I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> at the turn of the century, I worked with uh, offenders getting ready to go back out in the community. And one of the things we would do with them is we would talk about the seemingly irrelevant decisions that they were going to make in yes. their community that were tremendously relevant, but we didn't see it. If you go yes. to work, which way are you going to walk or drive home? Are you going to trigger yourself by certain things? And you know, what are you doing on Thanksgiving? And who are you going with? And all of these little things that they would say to us, these are ridiculous. Not like if that, and then they would come home, get home and tell us afterwards, oh, I'm glad I thought about that because I had a plan of how to mm -hmm. avoid it. So, uh, so know, it there. really is paying attention to that. So yeah. what are the eight dimensions of wellness? Just for the folks that uh, don't know oh, them gosh. all. Maybe myself included. I won't do <laughs> I'll see what I I'll see what I can pull out of my memory, but luckily I have my little diagram to you. Um, dimensions of wellness are physical, mm -hmm. intellectual, emotional, spiritual, environmental, meaning the community, not the recycling, right. financial, um, occupational, and social. So it's basically everything in our lives. And I didn't see you look down once. <laughs> I was <laughs> so you trying. didn't have to look at your diagram. Um, just, uh, you know, one final question for me, and, and that's I'm going to throw a phrase out to you that I, I heard you use in one of your trainings. And you touched on a little bit without really saying it, but it's, it's as simple as this. Is, you said recovery is not too late to do prevention. What do you mean specifically by that? It, it's, it's like the example I used with my family. If, if some of the members of my family had been able to find recovery, let alone maintain it, the prevention would have been built into that. Because if you're the parent struggling with an addiction, you're doing prevention when you choose recovery. Because now the child is seeing an alternative way to make choices, an alternative way to cope with life, an alternative way to think and be and do. So recovery is doing prevention because your individual and your personal journey in recovery impacts the people around you in positive ways too, not just your children, maybe your neighbors, maybe, you know, the, the people at church. It's pers our personal wellness is like a domino effect yeah. to the other people around us. So that's why I don't think recovery is too late. I think recovery mm -hmm. is sometimes a starting point for prevention, especially after multi-generational trauma. It's recovery yeah. is a great place to start prevention. 
Yeah, I think as you're describing that, it's, you know, you're a role model and it's the butterfly effect, right? If, If one, if I am actively using and I'm actively in the throes of substance use disorder, I affect not just my immediate family, but my community and, and all those around me. The same effect happens when and if I find recovery, that if I'm able to build some bridges where I yes. have but people are seeing a different side and saying, well, change is possible and welcoming me back into the community where I have to sometimes I have to earn my place back. But I'm able to do that and show that there is an alternative. Yeah, yeah. Am I frozen now? Nope, now we're okay, good. I, just to, I got your message. It happens on occasion. Yeah, so, it's technology. Yeah. Well, before we finish up, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Is there a training you'd like to promote, especially free ones? <laughs> there are so many. <laughs> Um, you can find some of the, well, a lot of prevention trainings, not just mine, on TPN Health website. Uh, they do a variety of webinars across the spectrum. Um, also NADAC, which I can never remember the full acronym, the full description of it. The National Association. NAADAC, that's all I know. Yeah, NAADAC.org. A lot of webinars and trainings also across the continuum. Um, and if if you're interested in prevention in particular, you know, reach out to me through Jeffrey and we can, we can set it up. It's, it's, we all do this kind of work. Um, and, and the more we know about it, the stronger we all are. You know, before we close, um, uh, I, I hope that we've helped people to see the interconnectedness between different roles and foci in our industry and recognize, you know, kind of the importance of taking that 30,000 foot looking down on the globe view instead of what we're often forced to do, that myopic view. And I, I think that, like I said, we all do that, not necessarily because we want to, but that's all we've got and and we're, we're overwhelmed with that. So I, ho- I hope that people can get a clear picture of how we can make positive change. Um, I'm going to say this, and and people that know me know, we absolutely have issues with credibility in the field, but I think when we put the words to that, we can uh, have the power to erase them. Jane, thanks for spending time uh, with us today. I'm sorry that you won't be able to go to the APNC conference next month, uh, because I hear someone's going to do a fantastic presentation there. They always uh, do. Grief of the... Grief of the loss of, of your drug of, of abuse. Mm, so uh, Good topic. Uh, you know, if I'm going to throw you a bone all training, I'm going to throw myself <laughs> one as well. You know, I'm just, yeah. I'm just <laughs> so, Knowledge I, is power. I really thank you for spending time with us today and, and getting to talk to you. I thought it was, you know, absolutely fascinating and really important stuff for people to know. Um, and, and so hopefully we'll talk to you again at another time. I hope so. Thanks for inviting me on. Uh, I'd also like to again send my appreciation to Joanna Crowell of Crowell Counseling and Consulting for her financial support. And uh, in terms of sponsorship of our, our podcast, we welcome any organization to join us as a sponsor. I can be reached at info at ctcertborg.org for more information. And we here at the CCB appreciate everyone who's listening. Don't forget to follow us on either Podbean, iTunes, Amazon, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'll catch you next time, everybody. Bye.